How's it going, everyone? Today's special guest is our good friend, James DeBeo. Now, James, I think it was about three years ago, I initially kind of reached out to you via LinkedIn and look at how that app works where you basically see someone you might recommend or whatever. And we kind of got talking. Then world and life happened. We kind of lost touch. And I reached out to you probably a month ago to kind of get you on here once I started this podcast stuff. And I'm fortunate to finally have you have you face to face. Likewise. Thank you for the opportunity. Great to, to talk about. How have you been uh, kind of handling stuff since last March happened? Well, well, certainly, uh, I appreciate you asking. I hope you and your family are well. Obviously, COVID-19 certainly has uh, affected, you know, uh, domestically and internationally, you know, our respective worlds. So, uh, yeah, lots lots of happenings, ton of happenings in the world right now. Uh, family's doing well. We're staying healthy, doing everything we can, obviously, you know, to do our part. But, you know, this conversation is very important because we're, we're in the midst of, a, you know, obviously a very contentious political cycle. So from a security standpoint, we look to have these conversations to share information and learn from one another, you know, during this age of disruption. So let's kind of jump into that. We'll start with COVID first mm -hmm. with how much in your field when it comes to, I mean, obviously there's different stuff in place, whether it's temperature checks, masks, social distancing, that's all part of it now. For the time being so how much of an added wrinkle does that add to say venue security or event security on top of what you already have to do when people are mentally tired there is a sense of tense in the air yeah i mean it's a terrific question obviously you know uh, a lot has changed since march you know uh, domestically and internationally you know we we were always in and really my lanes are you know event security sport venue risk management those densely populated areas where we want to keep fans safe when they're out at venues. And obviously, in light of COVID-19, you know, uh, a lot of things have changed. So we look at, you know, the procedures and protocols that go into safely getting fans, you know, back into stadiums, venues and arenas. But we always have to be cognizant of the fact that once we are past the pandemic, all those challenges that had existed prior to COVID-19 will come back again, you know, A through Z active shooter, you know, uh, errant drones, bomb scares, IED over in Manchester. We're looking at after action lessons learned. So it, it really is kind of a, an A through Z laundry list of challenges that, you know, present, um, you know, risks for stadium venue ownership groups. And, and certainly, uh, you know, we look at professional sports entities, these multi-billion dollar juggernauts, the amount of money that has been lost uh, in terms of sports and entertainment, you know, hospitality, tourism has been just staggering. So they have a vested interest, obviously, in getting the fans back, you know, into the venues. And the fans certainly want to get out to these live events. So at some point, you know, we will have an FDA-approved vaccine, and that will lift the confidence uh, domestically and internationally. And that will be obviously, you know, a, a great opportunity. But we, again, we have to be mindful you know, that the bad actors are continuing to study our playbooks on what we're trying to do to keep fans safe while out at stadium venues and arenas. And the, you bring up an interesting point. The bad guy or girl is always planning to do something bad. And so they're not worried about masks and social distancing. They're still planning the next car attack, the next truck bomb, that next active shooter. And so it, it, the stress level for law enforcement and people like yourself working in this stuff, it's got to be kind of daunting. Because you guys, with the mm -hmm. economy and the fact that budgets are, people want to change budgets and there's not staffing, the right staffing numbers aren't there, it's got to add added stress to a, 
a field that you're in that's already crazy. It, it does. And it's challenging. But, you know, and let's not forget about the cyber challenges, right? The ransomware, the malware, the Bitcoin, the cryptocurrency, you know, someone gaining access to a stadium's infrastructure, if you will. You know, we think about the Super Bowl of, a few years ago when the lights went out. Kudos to the NFL. They kept the players on the field. Initially, we thought that was some type of terrorist attack. It turned out to be some facilities related issues. So, you know, moving forward, we have to be, you know, mindful of the bad actors, Russia, China, Iran, whoever's trying to, you know, um, enter that cyber, uh, cyber ecosystem. Um, that, again, uh, you know, plays into all those challenges that I've mentioned. So you can imagine, you know, someone, you know, gaining access to, you know, um, the door locks in a venue, someone pulling a fire alarm, and then as fans are exiting, you know, you go into an active shooter or an errant drone scenario. So it could be a multitude of challenges. So it's really incumbent upon, you know, the venue ownership groups to really, you know, learn their lessons, but also red team and, and practice, practice, practice in terms of, you know, the proactive risk mitigation training for safeguarding these spaces. As they kind of, the one, when I'm on tour and stuff with the crews and stuff, we run through different drills and scenarios, which, hey, there's a shooter here, how you get from this area, exit routes and stuff like that. But as you work with a stadium or these business owner groups with their venues, are you, are, how aware are the owners and key staff of protocols that, hey, if this, if this happens, we have to do this and vice versa? Well, if they're not aware, they certainly should okay. be, right? So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a great question, but, you know, it, it's what keeps them up at night. And no one wants to be that venue ownership group that's cited for skimping on security. You look at the Brian Stowe case, yep. obviously with the Dodgers, the Las Vegas shooting incident. No one wants the Boston Marathon bombing, Manchester. No one wants to end up explaining in court, you know, in a, in a deposition six months down the road, you know, that they cut corners in terms of, you know, stadium security. So it's lessons learned. It's after action reports. It's sharing inf information in a timely manner with one another. It's those important collaborations between, you know, obviously the public-private partnerships. And it's all those integrations of technologies, you know, biometrics, iris scans, fast pass lanes. They're doing a lot of virtual queuing now. In addition to the COVID uh, procedures and protocols, it's all those integrated uh, proactively, which again, uh, you know, protects the organizations from those inherent liabilities that they could be possibly exposed to. It's funny you mentioned the lights going out because I remember watching it thinking either the broadcast got cut out or there's something nefarious and planned here. And at what point did we get to that idea where I'm thinking the worst case scenario where it, it could be a blown fuse, but I'm thinking there's something at play here. Where was that kind of transition where when stuff like that happens, we have to think worse because it could be the worst. It, it certainly could. And, and, you know, I was in law enforcement for 20, 21 years. And what I learned is everything is the real thing until proven otherwise. So our actions have to be reasonable and necessary. And I really think the key is, you know, what we do in practice is, is how we're going to react. A real Ultimately, fix your, uh, your microphone there, James. I'm awesome. sorry. Can you oh, hear me? I hear you. You're good. I'm sorry. So, you know, so basically what we do in practice is, is how we're going to react in a real life scenario. So it's really those crisis communications, the red teaming, SEPTED, right? Crime prevention through environmental design, stadium design and build. It's all of the enterprise risk uh, security management. It's all those uh, variables that go into, 
you know, mitigating risk within confined spaces. So to answer your question, everything's the real thing until proven otherwise. And again, we operate from a position of empowerment when we have the knowledge and the awareness and the training to, to again, protect these spaces. If you can, kind of break down what goes into an after action plan. Um, I know a lot of people are always kind of like, well, is that Monday morning quarterbacking or like what is like what is the benefits of doing an after action report when something happens? Well, you know, certainly we look at Las Vegas, right? We learn yep. so much, you know, by having the key stakeholders come in and share that information. So we, we look for when obviously what went wrong and how we can improve upon that. But wouldn't it be nice to have the scenario where we've done all these things up front where we don't have to worry about after action reports? I mean, we always want to, you know, go through, uh, you know, our playbook to make sure, you know, we're doing the best that we can, but certainly lessons learned and sharing of best practices is, is paramount, you know, for this highly specialized niche. So, you know, we want to do, uh, you know, um, simulations and table, tabletop exercises, but the key is to, to make sure that those stakeholders, you know, IT, GRC, the legal, you know, uh, security, whether that's contracted in-house, you know, obviously, as I've mentioned, those public-private partnerships could be joint terrorism task force. If we're saying for some type of mega event like the Super Bowl, you know, the marshals, the FBI, Secret Service, that they're walking through the venue a year, year and a half in advance. So they know the physical layout of that particular state. And the advance for my world is so vital to make sure you can have the best chance of being successful. Mm -hmm. How come a lot of people try – they don't really see the value of that. Can you kind of touch on that? Why people don't think you need to do that? Well, security is always something that, that doesn't necessarily generate revenue, right? right. So it's, you know, so when we look at trying to articulate, you know, that message to the C-suites, the CTOs, the CSOs, the CEOs, but as I mentioned earlier, you don't want to be that venue that ends up in court financially explaining why you didn't institute these safeguards. So I think moving forward, you know, post pandemic, uh, we're going to continue to have these conversations, but certainly the threat continuum is ever evolving. It's extremely complicated. And my work in higher ed, as well as doing, you know, threat assessments is to share this information, but it's how I deliver, how we deliver that message, right? In right. terms of, you know, being proactive and creating that value, you know, that the ownership groups can, can understand from a financial standpoint. If we could kind of talk about Las Vegas, I had a couple of friends that were on the crew at the time. Mm -hmm. And so it's one of those things where I'm like, man, I could have been there. One of those, you're always thinking you could be there with your, your kids or your wife at the show. And there's really, and I hate looking at stuff where it already happens. We're like, well, I would have done this. Is, I, part of me is like, there's nothing you really could have done to stop that shooting. Now, if you want to look at the search procedures at the casino and that type of stuff. I get that, but I don't know what you could have done. Like, how do you say that show is coming back in two years and they're like, we're going to do the same exact show in honor of these victims. What planning has now changed? Well, we never thought an aerial assault, 32 floors up, uh, a deranged crazy. shooter, crazy, crazy black swan event, right, John? Right. I mean, something that it's completely unprecedented. You know, when you look at the sports security playbook prior to Vegas, you know, we thought we kind of were heading in the right direction. Now you throw that in. And so ultimately, um, you know, you want to sit down and just figure out what went wrong. But the key is those radio communications, you know, obviously those those collaborations with the first responders. On a personal note, my wife's girlfriend from California was in Vegas. She was in the crowd. Oh. She was surrounded by a, a fuselage of bullets, a good Samaritan. 
got her out of there to this day. She's still suffering, you know, with some post PTSD regarding that event. Uh, thankfully, she's here to talk about it. But unfortunately, we lost a lot of good people on that day. So, you know, we want to be cognizant of, you know, what we've learned. And, and ultimately, you know, it's those exterior perimeters, right? The, the um, obviously the hotels that they're keeping an eye out uh, in terms of their uh, you know, access control and cameras. Um, and again, those exterior perimeters that, that go outside the venues that kind of flow inside of and outside of venues. You know, my experience in 2012 is I opened the Barclays Center. Oh, wow. You know, yeah, which was an amazing experience. So first eight nights of Jay-Z and Beyonce followed by Barbara Streisand. Two completely different <laughs> But you can imagine coming out of a Brooklyn Nets NBA basketball game with 18,000 fans, you know, going down into the Long Island Railroad and PA. So that's obviously a venue that leads into a mass transit hub. So fans have been drinking for a few hours. Now you have fans that may not be reacting. And now you have a crisis situation in a densely populated area becomes extremely challenging in terms of duty of care, you know, with whether you're going to shelter in place or evacuate. And so it's those coordination of efforts with, you know, the Long Island Railroad, the MTA, the NYPD, obviously, you know, the, the transportation hub to make sure that everything is flowing smoothly, you know, within those spaces. Right. You mentioned perimeter and I kind of, that kind of brings me to the Gilroy festival a couple of years ago where the shooter came through the woods and somewhere where yeah, they assumed yep. that perimeter was too far, far enough out from the, so how does that change your planning now if you're doing a festival like that? Like you yeah. can't put a security guy every 10 feet. There's no budget in play unless obviously you have the money for it. But how do you mitigate that? Different layers? Well, again, you know, concentric circles from the inside out. You're right. It's I mean, the, the bad actor in that case cut a hole through the fence. Right. But, you know, we're seeing in Manchester, they're doing reconnaissance. They're doing walkthroughs. They're studying like we are. and But they're doing it from, you know, a, a bad actor. Malevolent, malevolent stand, standpoint. So to answer your question, it's really going to take an effort between, you know, the, the venue producers and, and obviously the folks that are running the shows, as well as the patrons. See something, say something, run, hide, fight. But if something doesn't feel right, see, you know, see right to them, they need to share that, you know, with somebody in a position of authority who could mitigate that risk, you know, before it happens. Yeah, as well as things after that stuff happens, especially like those festival type things where if these promoters and producers who kind of put out these, not they don't have to be training videos, but a thing where it's like, Hey, it's 80 degrees out. You see a guy in a, a winter jacket and looking like, like that place, you should probably say something. I just think some people just take it for granted that someone else will say it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what, that was the problem in Manchester where, you know, we, we want to be cognizant of any racial profiling, but we also have to just, err on the side of caution and have somebody again in a position of authority look into that situation again if you if your actions are reasonable and necessary no one's going to fault you for that whether you're venue ownership law enforcement or a good samaritan you're trying to do the right thing you're trying to keep people safe you just get that feeling inside that something doesn't feel right you really need to say something you know, sooner than later how vital has social media been it, to benefit you guys as professionals and how has it been uh, kind of made everything worse for you guys? Yeah, it, it's definitely, I mean, you know, again, we, we've connected through social media, right? So right. It's given us an opportunity to become friends and, and share resources. But, you know, uh, within stadiums, 
you know, the key is responsible social media monitoring. It's got to be done responsibly, you know, for law, uh, law enforcement purposes. And we want to use that inf information, obviously, to mitigate risk. You know, stadium ownership groups understand the importance of having a social media manager with inside those command centers. But just as we're doing all the good work, uh, the bad actors are maybe below the radar screen, you know, or they are um, obviously trying to network through social media, you know, to to find those get gaps, uh, threats and vulnerabilities within confined spaces. So it's a double edged sword. But certainly technology is not going away. I mean, we're connecting right now through technology right. in the higher ed space I teach you know, through distance learning. So it's here to stay. It's going to continue to evolve. But, but I think, as I mentioned earlier, you know, with the license plate readers technology and certainly, you know, reconnaissance through drones, you know, there's a lot of advantages to integrating technologies for keeping fans safe at, at stadiums, venues, and arenas. I've been on the road sometimes in different cities across the world, and we'll get, we'll get these threats through social media like a Facebook or Instagram, like, mm -hmm. hey, we're coming to the show. We're going to shoot the singer. And there's been times where I feel if, when I when I trust my gut and I'm like, hey, let's let's get a picture of this person. Let's let local law enforcement, the local venue, be aware, ticket booths and stuff. But sometimes I'm like, this person is just running their mouth. And I and I is it like I don't know how if I do it. Should I assume that all threats have the possibility of being exactly that the threat? Well, again, we don't we don't want to be paranoid. We right. just want to be situationally aware. Right. And, and for, you know, again, I wrote my book. You were kind enough to, to put that out to the audience about what's your plan. Thank you, sir, very much for your support. Very, very important. So you don't have to be a security expert or someone who's done this for, for 30 years or whatnot. You just have to be aware of your surroundings at all times and have that pre-planned response on how you're best going to survive an unthinkable situation. So certainly, you know, we just want to we, we want to operate from a position of empowerment, not fear. But that comes with just being situationally in tune with what's going on in the world around us at all times. You mentioned the election at the beginning. and It doesn't have to be this one per se, but every time there's an election or whatever, one side thinks one thing, one side thinks the other, their guy or girls, whatever. But with that, it's so crazier now with the pandemic that people are on edge. There has to be that added sense of like – uh, like if I'm law enforcement, I'm scared to go to work more so now because you have protests, you have riots, you have all this crazy stuff. Like how do you, how do you mentally kind of clear your head every day if you're a security professional and then you know you have to, you walk into a world right now that is, it, for all intents and purposes, it's like cowboys and Indians, the Wild West. It, it really is, and as I've mentioned, I you know uh, I was blessed to spend 21 years in law enforcement, but I retired in 2011. So policing is is become much more dangerous. It's much more complicated. <laughs> now than it was in 2011 when I retired from law enforcement. But, you know, certainly, um, you know, certain cities are trying to defund their police, which I don't agree with. And I'm not trying to get political here. It's right. just what we're seeing now is that when that's happening, when, when law enforcement doesn't have the resources, then tactically they cannot best mitigate those spaces. So in, in venue security, the key is the fan experience. So it's finding that balance between keeping people safe, but not, you know, being overzealous and creating a police state. Right. That's what it was like prior to COVID-19. So as you've mentioned now, you know, the counting votes around, around the country, uh, geopolitical divisiveness. At some point, we get back into venues and whoever doesn't get in the White House, the other the other party, if you will, may want to, you know, just tell the world that they're unhappy with who the current president will be at that time, as an example. You know, so it's that 
you know, we're dealing with macroeconomics, the financial ramifications of COVID-19. And again, those bad actors that, you know, whether it's in, you know, K-12 universities, it could be sporting venues, but, you know, they may de- be somewhat disenfranchised and they may want to tell the world, you know, who they are for all the wrong reasons. And so that becomes ever more challenging, you know, post-pandemic. Very fascinating. One of the things when it comes for me, if I have to staff a festival security team or a, uh, one of those rock theme crews teams, I, I, I have the ability to staff it with people I know, trust with the right training, licenses, like people I know that love what they do. But I've, I'm curious to your point of view, when it comes to these college games where you always see like these mass hiring events, mm-hmm. um, half the people you're probably hiring probably love what they do and they love, they respect the craft and security and being customer service and helping people, but other people treat it like a gig. Does that mentality kind of affect someone really doing a bag check at the door if they're just there to collect a paycheck and don't really give a two cents about what they're doing? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. So are we there to watch the event or are we there to keep people safe? Right. And so what are the advantages of, you know, when I was with Barclays Center, I was with AEG, but we were with, uh, you know, Contract Security Securitas. So what are yep. the advantages of in-house versus third-party, you know, risk transfer as far as contract security? And we also have to be, you know, cognizant of the insider threat, right? So we have to properly vet our volunteers, our employees, because unfortunately, event security tends to have a higher staff turnover. So that makes it difficult in terms of the continuity of training. So I've always been a strong proponent of, uh, you know, getting into the venue, working in guest services. In in the UK, they call it, uh, you know, obviously the stewards. Understanding, you know, the, the ability, the wayfinders the ability of uh, verbally communicating, but also understanding, you know, situational awareness, understanding guest services, and then maybe transferring over to security and cross training. So you have those multiple skill sets. Again, that's on the ingress because they're the palace guard, right? They're working with law enforcement, you know, when you're coming into the venue. And unfortunately, you know, as I've mentioned, for instance, let's say you have, you know, Justin Bieber on a Monday night, you have a load in, load out on a Tuesday, Wednesday night, heavy metal, followed by Thursday night NHL hockey as an example. Right. You have all different types of demographics and you have, you know, staff that may not be used to working, you know, different types of events. You may have a, a security officer that just works primarily part-time and loves hockey. So he works NHL games, but doesn't know anything about working at a circus or some <laughs> other event. Right. Right. So it's, it's having, you know, some consistency in staff, but also being you know, proactive in terms of training and understanding you know, the different types of crowds that come to your venue, you know, day in and day out. Right. Oh, fascinating. Let's kind of touch upon your law enforcement uh, background. What kind of led you to be a law officer? And as you kind of work at the police department, what catalyst kind of led you down to the path to retire and jump into the event security side? Yeah, great question. I, I never really wanted to be a policeman. <laughs> I thought I was going to go and be a lawyer you know, and go to law school. Um, But I took the exam. I did very well. And at 25, I went into the Nassau County Police Department and uh, really my world changed for the better forever. Uh, You know, it taught me the love of public service. Um, You know, I retired at the age of 46. Um, I went back and got a a master's degree, which wasn't easy. It was expensive, but it really changed the course of my life. And since 2011, 2012, I've really transitioned into event security, something that I'm extremely passionate about. And I've had the ability to write a book and, you know, just travel around the country, have these conversations. But ultimately, my starting point was going into law enforcement. Uh, 
And to this day, 30 years later, I just love keeping people safe. It's something that I'm passionate about. And, you know, it'll stay with me as long as, as possible. But, you know, these conversations are important, John, because, again, you know, there's a lot of fear in our society. But as I've said over and over again, you know, um, fear is, is certainly not something that affords us the ability to operate from a position of strength. We want to be empowered. We want to get past the fear and we want to live our lives and be safe. But at the same time, you know, survive unthinkable situations if they present themselves. What is the mindset right now of someone who is a law officer that their department or city is has like this crazy hate to fund the police? Like how much added stress does that add to not only the officer, but their life at home? Yeah, we have to look at the obviously the, the PTSD and the mental health for everyone, right? For students, K through 12 colleges, you know, the kids that are taking classes online, my own kids, we need to check in with everyone. You asked me from the beginning how I'm doing. I appreciated that. We all need to just connect on that human level because we're not robots. We're not machines. We're human beings. We have our good days. We have our bad days. Law enforcement, you know, is a very, very stressful job. We need to check in with our officers. But we also have to be cognizant that re really recruitment is down in a lot of cities. You know, the, the situation coming out of Minneapolis was a travesty on, on every level you can imagine. But we want to learn our lessons in terms of training. And, you know, obviously we want to have those, uh, you know, relationships, community policing. It's so important, you know, moving forward that we understand inclusiveness and, and certainly, you know, the issues of race that are going on. We want to have empathy for one another because no matter who gets in the White House, we still have to learn to live with one another peacefully. Right. Uh, so these conversations give us an opportunity, you know, to have these discussions moving forward. How vital is customer service to our jobs? I mean, obviously you have to do it as a law officer, but the security field and stuff like that, like, well, just at the big picture, everyone should be show empathy and kindness and be a good human. But you do see people that kind of, especially the security field that don't know how to deal with or read the, if, so, if I look at a woman and she's crying, like I'm not, I'm, maybe something happened at home or she's not feeling well. Like there's different ways of dealing with different people. The first reaction usually isn't to fight the guy or drag the girl out. So how important is customer service? And is there a way to get better at it besides the hands-on type of approach to it? Well, it's a great question. I mean, we're always trying to fix things, right? My wife always says to me, always trying to solve the problem, you know? We need to listen first. And I think what's happening now is everyone's too busy talking and we're not listening to one another. So if you're in a venue and someone's really having a bad day, we're just trying to fix the problem. But with training comes empathy. So eight out of 10 times with verbal de-escalation, if we treat somebody with dignity and respect, we're going to de-escalate that situation peacefully. That's what we're supposed to be doing, whether that's law enforcement, whether that's venue management. There are those rare cases, maybe, maybe you know, no matter what you do, you know, law enforcement may have to escalate that, you know, they, they tend not to want to do it. And of course, unless their lives are in danger, it's a different scenario. But when we look at the threat continuum, we do everything we can, but that really starts, John, with training. And we right. have to do it consistently and we have to be good listeners. We have to engage in active listening. Uh, contentious political cycle, everybody wants to be right for their own individual reasons. And that's what's causing a lot of uh, the discord in our country is that we just don't want to work together because we're too busy trying to, you know, put our own, you know, mantras before anyone else's. And if we just take the time to take that deep breath and just wait, pause, and then listen actively, 
you show empathy and you show the other person that you really care about what they're going through, you know, at that particular moment. I have found as I get older, I mean, I, I say that whatever, but I have found that for me to practice that type of, like, from March to the first eight months of this, my my job itself with the, the venue and touring and security for artists, that obviously was on hold. And so I didn't have that daily crowd interaction from law enforcement, military, crowd, like any all that type of different stuff. So when I go into the grocery store now or I or stores, I find myself looking forward to cr creating a conversation to, I don't know if it's more to just not practice talking. I don't know if I'm saying this right, but one of those things where I'm, I'm looking forward to having an interaction and seeing where it goes. Yeah. And, and you know, right now we're, we're wearing masks. Right. Right? So maybe, right. they, I mean, obviously we need to for, for you know, obviously right. COVID-19. So you really can't judge what the, the person's facial expression is because they have a mask on. Uh, but you're right. And I think people are just waiting for other people to come up and just say, how are you doing? You know, you're having a good day. And, and because you really don't know mentally what's going on in that person's mind. They could have been, you know, su suffering a divorce or, you know, right. kind of some kind of family situation or having problems with their kids or they just lost their job. And so when we look at, you know, obviously workplace violence, eventually we're going to be transitioning back into corporate environments, whether that's a hybrid or work from home or physically being on the site. We really don't know psychologically what someone has experienced the eight, nine, 10 months they've been home. And we're seeing the studies are showing the kids are more depressed and more anxious. You know, they're not receiving, you know, K through two as an example. They're about six months behind in terms of, you know, their learning and whatnot. So, excuse me a second. So, so ultimately, we want to take a look at the psychological impacts uh, in terms of, you know, the pandemic and how, how we move forward, obviously. It was funny, like from March, April, May, there was this thing where you, obviously you would know, like you go to the grocery store, everyone's spaced out, follow these arrows. But even people you knew or not friends, but acquaintances, everyone was so standoffish. It was so weird because it's like, they thought that everyone kind of had this issue of just being alone or, I don't know, it's very, it made me kind of sad that the, that the human race was in that position where we couldn't really just deal with the idea of that hey, you can still be a good human. Even though they have a mask on, they're six feet away. Like that compassion was missing. And it's it's cool to kind of see that coming back in a safe in safe way. But I'm, I'm just glad to see people can be human again. Exactly. And, you know, we you go back to Maslow, right? You know, once we get past food and shelter, you, you know, we socially need to interact with one another. So, you know, whether you're introverted, extroverted, it, it's good to be around other people. It's good to have these conversations. We're connecting, you know, through Zoom, obviously through different types of technology, but nothing replaces face-to-face -face communication, uh, you know, it, regardless of the environment. So, you know, we have our work, you know, uh, cut out for us, but, you know, I'm always the glass is half full. Right. And I always say, you know, John, that with uncertainty comes opportunity. And because of this pandemic, we're seeing now even in the higher education space, 
you know, all the work that comes, uh, you know, in terms of remote learning and distance learning and technology. Some people have called this the fourth industrial revolution. So I think we're seeing a major uh, renaissance in learning, which is amazing. We're seeing that, you know, we have to continue to, you know, be lifelong learners and, you know, obviously learn from one another. But I'm excited, you know, moving forward because, you know, really we have what we have, which is each other. And we have to learn to just make it work with each other for one another, obviously. So, you know, I'm excited moving forward. I'm, I'm happy to have this conversation. Uh, I'm thankful that obviously you have the book and hopefully it's been something that's helped you. And, you know, the feedback that I've, I've received is that, you know, it's just something that uh, just makes sense. It's easy, it's, it's very tangible. And it just reminds folks to just see the world around them at all times, you know, uh, again, in spite of, you know, all the challenges that we're facing right now. And let's, let's kind of talk about your book too, because I, when I, we first started talking, I, I, you had just kind of released the book and I, I, I had got it, but I never really read it. I thought it would be too much for me in the sense of this is an expert that's going to be talking like expert things where I can't, this is like the Tom Clancy. I thought it was like the Tom Clancy of like event security. I'm like, well, I'll get the book. Like I love supporting people like this because they're actually making a difference. So I, I reread, I read it a year ago and then I reread it recently and it's the most, there's no crazy jargon. Everyone can relate to it. It's like this checklist of what everyone could do in different environments, whether it's balls, carnivals, sporting events, concerts. So I, it's a two-part question here. At what point did you know you had to write this book? And two, was there a fear to kind of put yourself out there as this actual expert where people could pick this up and be like, well, this guy's know what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, great question. I thought I was a relatively, you know, intelligent person until I wrote my first book. Right? Okay. And, and so, <laughs> you know, full transparency here, you know, I, and, and as you read in the book, it was really a personal situation. Our family was at the mall, the lights went out. You know, my son said something to me, a mouth of babes. But really, uh, from that moment forth, I felt compelled, you know, yeah, obviously a security leader, but most importantly, a father. Yep. you know, and a family figure to try to do something. Ironically enough, the, the book is 82 pages long, as you know. 82 is uh, was my shield number with the Nassau County Police Department. Didn't plan it that way. That's the way it worked out. So I thought that was kind of neat. But I tried to keep it under 100 pages because obviously everything going on in the world right now, it's just a world of distractions. I wanted something that was just really easy for everyday moms and dads and families say, hey, James, you know, I was thinking about your book. You know, I was out at the venue last week or I was at a concert. Or I was in New York City, you know, pre-pandemic, obviously. And I thought about your book. And unfortunately, we had all these school shootings. And now it's making me realize the importance of sitting down with my family and having this conversation. And so when I hear that, you know, John, that that's really rewarding for me because then the message that I'm sharing is is resonating, you know, with families in terms of just being empowered and not fearful during, you know, these you know, certainly on difficult times. And it's such an easy read that it's kind of scared me because everything in there is so on point and it's so vital and important that everyone should understand, but it's easy to understand. And the way you're able to make it so, it's very fascinating, man. And I, I'm so glad you put that out there. Well, thank you. And again, you know, I always tell, you know, everyone who's listening, if you're going to a venue, you look at chapter one, you're going to a place of worship, whatever that, you know, place you're going to, just take a look at that chapter and pass the book around to your family and have each member of your family just read a little section of it and just talk it about it, talk it out loud and just discuss what you're going to do. Because again, 
God forbid you're in that situation and something happens. You've already had that pre-conversation. You know, you're going to meet at Starbucks. You're going to meet back at the car. You, you know, if you do get separated, you, you have that clothing description of your eight-year-old child just yep. in case they wander away from you. Just little things that we tend to maybe overlook because we live in such a world of distraction that if we just bring it, you know, down to the, the common denominator of just looking out for each other and our families, but knowing exactly what we're going to do. And I always caution law enforcement is responding. Their direction and guidance comes first, but it's those, those precious minutes, right? Before they get there. Yep. Well, you've already created that escape plan. You, you know, you've already talked about how you're going to react to that scenario and, you know, you want to increase your chances of surviving an unthinkable situation. And so really, I just wanted to make it something that was easy to read. So it would just resonate. And, you know, you can just have it on your phone. You know, you can go to church, you know, your university. When we go back to K through 12, just a reminder about active shooter situations. You know, there's a disgruntled student, you know, post Parkland, obviously. You've got to come forward and share that information, you know, with a school authority, obviously, if, if a fellow student's having a bad day. Yeah, the book's awesome, and I my company's actually opening up a training academy in Florida, and I'm I'm gonna order so many of these books and make it required reading that thank you it'll make my job that much easier. Um, you mentioned that the school shooting stuff, and we get to a point now where there are active training drills for students and teachers if there is a shooting, and you, there is a lot. Of, there's pushback from people like, well, why do we have to do this? It's sad we have to do this. And I sympathize and I totally get it, but we do have to do it and be prepared because, and I'm not going to say it's, it's one of those things where it does happen and the bad guy is always planning to do something like this. So how do you kind of help those people that come out there and are like, hey, this, this is crazy. We have to do this. How do you help them understand that? Yes, I agree with you, but it's vital that we do talk about this stuff. Yeah, it, it's how we deliver the message. Okay. Yeah, you, you know, my, I mean, just how I look at it, I, I don't want to sell fear. That's right. not what James DeMeo is about. I'm sure that's not what you're about. Right. I'm sure that's not what the audience is about. It's just getting the information, digesting it, and just making a decision that best works for you and your family. Whether you agree or disagree, the information is out there. What you do with it is entirely up to you. You know, I'm not in the business of saying, I told you so. That's not how I operate. I, I talk about just empowering, sharing information, and just trying to get folks to understand, you know, that the world that we live in is conflicted. But when we when we know what to do and we're aware, we're going to take those necessary steps in to be out in front of these potential challenges. When you walk into a mall or a restaurant, and obviously you talk about your book, but how often do you find yourself kind of doing what you preach, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Where are you walking into a mall and you're like, okay, I know these exits to the store. I know if there's wherever here or if I'm the restaurant, I can sit at this table, look out the window. Like how often do you catch yourself doing what you uh, ideally want to make sure people are doing? Well, I, probably more than the average person. <laughs> and you too. I mean, you've been doing this quite a while. It's just so funny. You know, and, and unfortunately, we've seen a lot of bad things and we hope that the audience and, and the viewing listening audience never sees any of the stuff, right. you know, that we've seen, you know, in our careers. But we're just messengers. You know, we're just fac facilitators of knowledge. And so we just want to share the information, but we, we can't do it from a position of fear. You know, I'm not into, you know, getting on television and trying to scare people. That's not how I operate. I just want to give you the information, let you digest it. 
talk to your family and you can make your own personal decision on whether or not this works for you and your family. So, you know, it's a challenge, but, you know, ultimately, um, unfortunately, you know, bad things are going to continue to happen no matter, you know, nobody in the security industry, unfortunately, John, you know, bats a thousand, but we do the best we can and we learn our lessons and we share the information, you know, in a timely manner. And that's what we should be doing. I think it'd be funny follow you around for a weekend and watch you go to a ball or grocery store and be like, Oh, chapter two, you broke it. James. <laughs> you know, my kids are always reminding me because they're like, you know, you know, my kids are a little different because they're around me a lot. So maybe they're just a little bit more in tune, but that doesn't mean, mean other kids and other families don't have the potential of being in tune. It's just a question of sitting down and just seeing things a little bit differently and, you know, just trying to be out in front, obviously, of these challenges. And how often are you learning from your kids, like different trends or counterparts? I mean, I, you, you appear to be someone that you're not going to rest on your laurels. And if you can get new knowledge and learn and read about, you're going to do it. So how beneficial is it to have kind of kids so they're kind of, you might be able to be like, oh, I didn't realize that. And that's a social media trend or, oh, that's what you guys are doing now? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. Obviously, my, my kids are 22 and 16, but, you know, they remind me that I have to be able to relate to, you know, kids their age, you know, with this message. So, you know, if I'm, I'm dealing with adults or security experts, then we kind of talk a certain lingo. But when it comes to younger people, you know, they're very well skilled in technology and they're so in tune you know, with how technology, you know, works in their lives. But, you know, it's also important to, to understand that we can, you know, have these conversations and just really listen to what their concerns are. Because it's really, you know, they're our future and we want to know what they're worried about, what causes them stress and anxiety. And we just want to, as parents, as security leaders, provide them information, you know, to help them during difficult times. Right. I have come across when it comes to, and you would know this as well, large festivals or events where you have different departments, different promoters, different team leads. Do you find that when there is an ounce of bad ego, it can really change the, the effectiveness of the team concept? Because you must come across some people that are like, well, I'll be expert. I'll be expert of the expert. Like, how do you, how do you yourself navigate that when you try to work as a team? Well, you know, again, every, everybody has skills, gifts, and talents. And, uh, you know, it's important that we just understand that we all have something uh, to add. I mean, obviously, if you're good in technology, or if you're good in event security, or you're a cyber person, or you're good with, you know, biometrics, when we sit in the room, we all have gifts and talents and, and God-given abilities to share with one another. We just need to be respectful and understand that we can all, all offer, you know, um, the best that we possibly can. There are a lot of people out there that say they're experts and they're not. Um, we want to vet those people properly. If you ask me a question, John, about cyber and I didn't have an answer, I'm not going to say I know it. I'm going to find somebody and get back to you. So there may be somebody who has that skill set. So I think it's important for me as a security leader to find those folks you know, that I work with that specialize in those areas, again, to go back to, you know, clients or whatnot, universities, and then share that information to provide value for those individuals. Right. Before I let you go, I kind of want to, you're the president of the Unified Sports Entertainment Security Consulting Group. How did, what was the formation of that? And kind of what is some stuff you are doing with that uh, group you're president of? Thank you so much. So I started my LLC a few years ago. And again, it was, you know, obviously my transition into the private sector. So I do 
you know, obviously threaten uh, vulnerability assessments. I work with venue ownership groups. I do a lot of training. Uh, I speak around the country pre-pandemic, obviously, uh, with certain security organizations about event security. So I work with uh, technology providers. Um, you know, ISCC, I presented four times in Vegas and, and the Javits Center, which is a great honor. Uh, I've been doing a lot of work now in higher ed, which I'm extremely fascinated by, writing some curriculum. Uh, working with Mercer University, teaching undergraduate students, as well as Tulane University graduate students. So I'm really just uh, just so excited to continue working, you know, with the future leader. So that's part of what I do with my business is distance learning, writing curriculum, and then just trying to reach out to universities uh, to talk about, you know, creating value for them in terms of, you know, badges and certificates in event security. So it's just fascinating times, a lot of technology, a lot of education, but this conversation and our friendship is very important to me. And, and again, I thank you in advance, obviously, for everything that you're doing on your end to get this message out. Well, I think it's important that people talk and just get information. Like the information for me, that's why I kind of started this podcast where mm -hmm. you have the pandemic. Well, if I'm sitting at home, I still have this urge to read or learn or talk to different people, and whether it's cyber warfare, cyber, cyber, whether it's military, law enforcement, there's all this stuff out there that if you could talk to experts or people that work and live in that field, why wouldn't you do that? And to allow others to hear about an open conversation, I find that so beneficial. So I thank you for uh, taking the time. Likewise. And as you mentioned from the beginning, it's a, it's a free flowing conversation. So we learn from one another. I've learned a lot about you and what you do. And, and hopefully everyone that's listening, if they take one or two things from this conversation and they look at things a little bit differently, then we've done our jobs right with being, you know, facilitators of knowledge. No, 100 percent. And I'm sure when I go back, we would go back and rewatch it. And listen, I think it's going to post in two weeks, but Excellent. we could kind of, I always go back and do that and be like, man, I should have asked this question, but now it's kind mm -hmm. of thinking where I should go back and read this part of the book. So if people want to take your classes or reach out to you, or they have a question or they want to order the book, I found your book on Amazon. Um, it's actually, I did the last copy. It's always, it's always looks <laughs> like it's moving. So it's great for you. And uh, so how do people <laughs> kind of reach out to you if they want to take Thank classes you. or do stuff with you. Yeah, well, last copy is always a nice problem to have, right? As yeah, well. 100%. <laughs> but I, I appreciate the interest and the support. Uh, the website is jamesadameo.com. You just click that on. There'll be a link for the book. There'll be some videos on what I've done in, in terms of, you know, TV, um, you know, uh, conversations, looking to uh, continue to write because I'm a passionate about, you know, these types of conversations. There's, there's certainly, unfortunately, a lot of material, you know, to write another book you know, from what's your plan and, and a lot of the work that I'm doing in event security. So, you know, I'm on LinkedIn and, and obviously Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, but I'm just here to kind of share, you know, my passion for keeping people safe and, and continuing to, you know, learn from one another. And, and, you know, again, as we move, you know, the next couple of days and weeks, empathy and understanding conversations about inclusiveness and higher ed, very, very important. We want to all have opportunities to, to, you know, help our families and prosper, you know, in this amazing country. You know, we have our problems, but it's still the best place to live on earth. And, you know, I'm honored to have this conversation and friendship with you. And I certainly look forward to, you know, continuing our conversations moving forward. No, I love it, James. And I want to thank you again and uh, yeah. be safe and uh, we will stay in touch. Yes, John. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. everyone. Take care.